Well, good evening. My name is Ben Milner. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you're having a hard time hearing, these downstairs speakers apparently are not working. So um, I'll try to talk pretty loudly. We're looking at the um, book of Isaiah, uh, as you can tell. And um, we are now in the second half of the book. Um, the, the first uh, half of the book is mostly kind of a setup for the good news of the second half. So you kind of call the first half bad news. And then now we turn to the good news more. And today we're coming to uh, one of the great mysteries of the whole book of Isaiah. If you know the book of Isaiah very well, you know that there are these four songs that are called the servant songs. The servant songs. And this is the second most famous that we're looking at tonight. Um, The most famous is Isaiah 53, which is coming up in a couple of weeks. But the reason they're called songs is because lyrically they kind of stand out from the stuff around them. Um, They're Um, language becomes more exalted and sweeping, as one commentary says. So that's why they describe them as songs. But they're called servant songs because they're about this person, this mysterious figure who is called the servant, sometimes described in a way that uh, makes the servant sound like God, in this passage, for instance, and then other times described in a way that makes the servant sound like a human very mysterious figure. Uh, scholars debate all the time, what, who is this servant that Isaiah keeps talking about? But one thing we can kind of all agree on is that he's like a superhero. That he would, if, if Isaiah um, was a superhero movie, the first half would be the setup where the villain is about to destroy half the world. It's really looking bad at chapter 40. But then in chapter 40 and on, you have this the camera kind of uh, zooms in on this servant who's like the superhero. And like all superheroes, this one is all about justice. He's coming to bring justice. Verse 1 tells you that right off the bat. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Like the, the hall of justice, if you know um, your kind of comic book lore. Superman, the hall of justice. Batman and Robin. Wonder Woman. Aquaman. Flash. And the Green Lantern. And I like to grade uh, superheroes on the kind of scope of their justice work. So if you take um, Batman and Spider-Man, they cover only one city. I mean, they do a great job, but they're just dealing with one municipality. But then Iron Man and Captain America, they broaden the scope, and they're dealing with basically an entire country. Um, Captain America, obviously, covering America. Sometimes they'll go beyond that, um, but generally they're smaller scope. But then you get to Superman and Wonder Woman, and we're talking about the whole world. They're dealing with the entire world. And I would say that the servant is more in that category. So he's a really high-level superhero. He brings justice to the nations, it says in verse 1, which basically means uh, the entire globe. That's Isaiah's way of describing the entire globe. And um, every superhero has a superpower. And in this case, um, it's not flying. It's not swimming underwater or high speeds. Um, ingenuity or strength. In fact, it's a very odd superpower. If you look at it, it's kind of the opposite of strength. It says in verse 2 that he will not cry aloud. He will not lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. In other words, he's very quiet in the way that he talks. And then in verse 3, maybe even more surprisingly, he's so gentle that he won't even break a bruised reed. Think about a reed, um, like a a flower, the stalk of a flower. And he's so gentle that he won't even break that. And then a faintly burning wick on a candle, he won't even snuff that out because his his way, his superpower is the opposite of brute force. It's it's his humility and his, his ability to illuminate people. 
Um, His ability to change people in this gentle and quiet way. Um, It says in verse 6, he is a light for the nations. And so what that means is that he kind of lights people up um, from the inside. And they begin to change. They're not coerced. They're just kind of lit up by his graceful, humble power. And that's how he brings the justice across the whole world, is he brings illumination to people. Uh, he illuminates each one of you, and he, he brings this light inside of you, and then makes you bring the justice. So he works through us to bring forth the justice. So I want to look at, first of all, this uh, worldwide justice that the servant brings, and then second, the, he does it through this power of illumination of enlightenment, the superpower of lighting people up. So those two things, justice and then illumination. So first of all, justice. Uh, He will bring forth justice to the nations. Now, a lot of people think of the God of the Old Testament, and if you know much of the Old Testament, uh, you may have heard this charge, that the God of the Old Testament was uh, uber-nationalistic, that he is totally anti-globalist, that the God of the Old Testament is tribalistic, that he's exclusive, that he only cares about the Jews, and he hates all the other nations. But if you look here at the great prophecy of Isaiah, clearly that's a lie. Because it says that he will um, not grow faint or discouraged until he's established justice in all the earth. So not only is that his desire, but he is, come hell or high water, he is going to bring justice to the entire world. He is dead set on that. God's servant's very purpose is to bring justice to every corner of the globe, all along the coastlines of the globe, including the ones that are being hit by the hurricane. It says in verse 4 that the coastlands wait for his law. And that means the the farthest coastlands. The coastlands to the Jews were like um, the way we would think of Borneo or some really small South Pacific island, some tribe maybe in Central Africa or uh, Central South America that's really, really hard to access, very, very difficult to get there. What Isaiah is saying is the most remote parts of the earth are waiting for him to come. Although yet they don't know it, um, the the, the servant is going to create this longing uh, in these people at the farthest corners of the globe. And this is what distinguishes the justice of this servant from a kind of cultural imperialism. A lot of people worry about um, the way that uh, Christianity is spread. This is an argument people make against Christianity. Um, They'll say, you know, I hate those missionaries. They go around and they force the Ten Commandments down the throats of these people. Uh, They destroy their cultures. If you've read the Poisonwood Bible, uh, which I read this year, uh, Nathan Price is this missionary figure. And a lot of times that's what we think of as what a missionary is and that that's what Jesus is. And he just forces this stuff on people. You think about the conquistadors imposing uh, Catholicism on the Mayans or the Incas with some force of arms, you know, at the point of a sword telling someone they've got to convert. Well, this is not that at all. This is... um, God inspiring people at the farthest coastlands to hunger and wait for the law. The the, the law of the servant, the law of God, the law that... uh, This this is one thing that makes the servant divine. It's a divine figure because it says that he wrote the law. And that these people... uh, The word wait means to long for or to hunger for or to yearn for. And what that says is every culture out there... Um, they're made for this law. They're starving for the law. And if they don't have the law, it's like um, not having sleep. It's like not having water or food. 
so this is the way that um, the law was always meant uh, to function. The law being the Ten Commandments. Um, you know, when God gave the Ten Commandments, right there at the moment of him giving them on Mount Sinai, uh, he says, I'm giving you this gift. First of all, it's a gift. It's not some horrible thing that he imposes on us. The, the law of God, if you know the Ten Commandments, they are a gift to the planet. And it's not just a gift to the Jews. It's like he gave them that gift so that they could re-gift that to the nations. And that's what he says right there on Mount Sinai. I'm not just making that up. That's in the very context of his giving the law. He says, I'm giving you this to be a kingdom and priest to all the world, um, to, to share the law, which is what makes people um, happy, joyful, makes cultures flourish. And so the servant here is spreading justice out from Israel. Um, and, you know, in, in what we know from history, church history, is that it did spread like uh, ripples from a pond uh, to Rome, the Roman world, the Arabian world. It went down to Ethiopia, went out to Spain, up into France and Germany, over to India, uh, England, China. It hit Scotland and Japan at the same time. But the law just rippled around the world um, because the people were waiting for it. He was not imposing it as a law from above, but he's stirring up a grassroots movement where people uh, long to do things like worshiping God or to rest. These are the Ten Commandments, to honor their parents. I mean, how can this be cultural imperialism to say these are things that people uh, would hate to be imposed upon them? To not murder, to not steal, to not covet, to not, uh, to not lie or commit adultery. This is, these are things that everyone wants. And so he's, he's giving the law. He, that's how he's bringing forth the justice, is that the nations are hungering for the law that he gives. And... You know, one example of that influence, someone from the coastlands last week um, was here and they wrote this prayer request down. And of course, when I say they were from the coastlands, that's because to Isaiah, this person who probably grew up somewhere on the East Coast was one of the coastlands, if you think about when Isaiah wrote that. And so this person wrote, I'm struggling with wanting to know God. I don't really want to obey all the rules, but I do want help with learning how to obey and wanting to obey. So it was, it was so honest. When I was praying for this, I just thought, how honest? It's brutally honest. I don't really want the law. I don't really want to have to obey those rules. But there's something in me that wants to want it. And that's, that's what I'm praying for. It's like a desire to overcome that lack of desire. And I thought, um, that's actually really, really hopeful, that prayer request. And that's maybe where you are today. You, you don't really want to obey God, but you really want to want to obey him. And, and that's, the, that's the servant. I would say that's the servant creating this hunger for the law uh, in the coastlands of the world. Uh, another example, on Tuesday night, uh, we were driving home from a soccer game that never happened in, um, in, our, in my minivan, which I love. If, you, if you've been here uh, for a while, you know how much I love that. That van, it was, it was pouring rain, which is why the, the game was canceled. It was just pouring rain. And there was a guy who was walking up Academy, um, obviously had been caught off guard, and he was just drenched. He, was, he, was, he had his bike with him, and um, his clothes were soaked. And I really, really wanted to stop and pick him up. Now, I didn't do that. Um, and so it might sound like a lame cop-out, but the desire there, the yearning for that, um, keeping of the law. And the law would have told me that's what you should do. 
And just the, the desire for that, if, if that yearning grows for justice, uh, that's what will bring justice to all the earth. When that kind of yearning grows. And maybe for you, you're struggling with something uh, other than that. Just from talking to some people this week, I thought about the, the phone addiction that is a real problem. Especially among younger people, because people of my age didn't really grow up knowing much about uh, smartphones. But if you're someone that um, really struggles with just constant uh, interaction with your screen, with maybe Snapchat or Instagram or Facebook, um, you know, those things can create lust in people very strongly. Um, They're actually kind of created to create lust and lead you deeper and deeper into porn. They also create envy and jealousy and uh, and self-loathing. And you know that it's awful, you know, if you're one of these people, uh, but you can't really stop. But um, if there's a yearning in you, if there's a longing and a waiting and a wanting to stop that, that, I would say that's the servant's power in you. And so you should take hope and courage because his purpose is he's not going to faint or grow weary until he keeps strengthening that desire, until you overcome. And you will overcome. You will overcome. That's eventually. That's the, um, that's the first point. Is he's going to bring justice to the earth uh, by causing his people to yearn for and wait for the law. Now, point two is this idea of illumination. That the, the, the illumination is what um, makes us yearn and want to keep the law. Something happens inside of us where uh, we suddenly can see. We are no longer blind. So verse 6 says, I, I give you... As a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind. The servant is supposed to be a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind. So the illumination here is clearly opening people's eyes, not physically, but spiritually. Now, there's also physical healing for blindness in the Gospels. We see Jesus doing that. But most importantly, we see Jesus opening people's eyes like Paul. If you know the story of Paul... Uh, he was breathing out threats and lies. He was an angry, violent man, self-righteous man, hateful man. And then all of a sudden, the scales fell from his eyes near Damascus, and he could see clearly. Now, why did he go from blindness to sight? It's because the servant was given as a light for the nations, in verse 6, to open the eyes of the blind. And when Paul opened up his eyes, uh, what he saw there was a blinding glory. It says that he... Um, He went physically blind for a little while when he became spiritually illuminated. It's kind of an irony. But what he saw was a glory so great that uh, it kind of almost took away his vision, at least for a while. And so in verse 8, you see that this is part of the purpose of the servant. Uh, When God is talking to the servant, God says, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other. Which is a major theme of Isaiah. Is that God is sovereign, unique, and will give his glory to no other. I will give my glory to no other and nor my praise to carved idols. And so what that suggests is that what prevents us, what prevented Paul um, from seeing the glory of God uh, are these things uh, that the Bible calls idols. And I don't mean um, a little totem, uh, a little statue, something you put on your mantelpiece. That does happen in the world. Probably none of us uh, do that. Not likely. But there are other forms of idols. Um, an idol is essentially something you worship instead of God. That's why uh, God says, I'm, I'm not giving my glory to anyone else, nor my praise to carved idols, implying that an idol is something that we give glory to, we give praise to, instead of God. And so why did I not pick up that guy on Thursday night? 
Um, what was stopping me on Tuesday night? Uh, why did I um, blow the chance there to glorify God? Why didn't I see the glory of God fully in that moment? And the answer is, uh, I didn't want to get my car dirty. That was probably the first thing that was running through my mind. Idle. I didn't uh, want to miss the end of the Georgia Tech football game. Um, idle. I wanted my um, half and half tea and black bean cake that I'd been kind of waiting for to heat up. An idle. I wanted my kids to go to bed. Uh, an idle. Now, those are not terrible things in themselves, but the, the overwhelming desire for that, instead of the glory of God, is where... You have the idolatry. And so I would say that, that idols um, are what blind you to the glory of God. For instance, you are um, reading a book that you just cannot put down. It's a page turn. Uh, you absolutely love it. And then you turn to read the scriptures and you just fall asleep reading them. Um, nothing wrong with that book, but it's uh, you know, being lifted up so high above the amazing stories that God gave us. That's idolatry. Or... You go to a football game and you, you, know, you scream and you raise your hands and you clap and uh, you high-five the people around you. But then you come to church and you're kind of bored. And to think of even doing that would be a little outlandish here. Um, again, nothing wrong with the excitement of the football game. It's just the you know, ridiculous proportionality of that over worship in church. And then um, you, know, you, you watch two hours of a show that you're really not even interested in. And then you, you get to the point where it's like 11.45 or maybe 1.45 uh, a.m. And you turn to pray with your last 10 minutes and you fall asleep, of course, praying. So what I'm saying is that idols are the things that we fantasize about getting and that we have nightmares about losing. And uh, they're the things that we wait for. We wait for them more than we wait for the law of God. The, the, the weekend to come. We wait for the big game. We wait for the vacation that's coming up. We wait for the holidays, chance to go home. We wait for graduation. We wait for romance and marriage and kids. And we want those things to light us up instead of, instead of the glory of God. It's kind of like you close all the blinds in your house on a beautiful, glorious day like today. And you close all the blinds so that you can watch your little you know, blue flickering screen. That's a great illustration of what it's like to worship idols and to be blinded by them. It says in uh, 4129, so if you look at the verse right before, maybe it's two before chapter 42. If you have a Bible, just scroll up a tiny bit. Uh, this is the context of Isaiah 42. The context of the coming of the servant is God says to Israel, behold, your idols are a delusion. They're nothing. They're empty wind. And when he says a delusion, what he means is that your thinking gets distorted by idols. That's one of the problems with idols is you don't see their idols anymore because you're so enamored with them. So maybe your friends are telling you you're, you're dieting way too much, you're um, restricting too much, you're exercising too much. Uh, maybe your friends are telling you you're isolating yourself, you're no longer hanging around with us, um, you're doing your own thing. You seem like you're depressed. Maybe your friends are telling you, you know, the girl or the boy that you're dating is bad news. They are not good for you. And uh, a lot of times, not only do we not hear that advice, but we get angry at those people because of our idols, because of the delusions uh, of thinking that a clean car is more important than a human being made in the image of God or that a screen um, is more important than a conversation with my wife and children. You know, going to a screen. And so Isaiah is saying these are, these are nothing. They're, 
There, the, the empty wind is what these idols are. And so what does a servant do about the idols? Um, verse 6, he says, uh, I will give you as a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. And in light of this discussion of idols, maybe you understand now what that means. Uh, what does it mean that, that the servant came to open the eyes of the blind, and to set the prisoner free. Well, actually, that was the mission statement of Jesus. So there's this amazing relationship between the Old and New Testament, especially the book of Isaiah, I think, where um, Jesus frequently quoted Isaiah. You know, Jesus was a rabbi who would have grown up uh, reading the scripture. He probably memorized scripture. And so when he came and he preached his first sermon, the very first sermon that Jesus preached in his hometown at the synagogue there, This is what he said. It says in Luke, uh, the Gospel of Luke, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and he has anointed me, and listen to this, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight for the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Now, where do you think he got that from? I mean, obviously, he grew up realizing, I am the servant. I am the light of the world. You know, I am the one who is going to shatter people's delusional thinking. I am going to shine the glory of God in people's hearts. That's what he grew up realizing about himself. Now, the people he told that to tried to kill him. They didn't want to have anything to do with that. Uh, But that is what the light is. It's his superpower, his illumination. And notice in verse 6, and I'm going to end with this. Notice that the light is described there. Uh, as a covenant. Now, that's a word that's not necessarily that familiar to people. It's not a word you use commonly. But uh, Isaiah clearly says that the nature of the light is a covenant. So how often do you think of light and covenant together? Not, not very often. But what this is saying is that the, the glorious radiance of God on earth, this light that Jesus is, that is equal to this um, absolute commitment on God's part to make us one with him. The light is that commitment, that covenant that God makes with human beings. So the best example, if you don't know what a covenant is, a covenant is, is basically this ring right here. A covenant is a ceremony um, where people are binding themselves to one another, both in some kind of symbol like a ring, um, and, and also more importantly in words. In, uh, in vows. The, the essence of a covenant is a vow. So I say, you know, Margie, I give you this ring as a sign of my vow. And with all that I have and all that I am, I, I honor you. And I say, um, in, in sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer, uh, in, for better or worse, till death do us part. And I'm saying, even when you're unfaithful to me, is what I'm saying there. I'm saying, Even when you're cheating on me, um, God is saying, even when you're idolatrous, I'm going to keep that covenant with you. Now, there are times when it's permissible for a human covenant to be broken in very tragic circumstances. But in the case of God's covenant with his people, he never breaks it. And, And it tears him up. 